1: I could remember sitting and watching the, the TV. This actually happened, you know, at the Capitol, right in front of our own eyes, and it seemed like it couldn't be stopped. You know, I frequent the Capitol, you know, sometimes, and I'm, I see all this security, right? And just for that to be able to happen was really, really scary.
2: Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. Today, we're going to continue our deep dive into how to prevent more political violence, which, if you haven't noticed, continues to be an urgent concern, both here and abroad. Chaos in Brazil. As thousands storm the country's capital, protesting October's election results. Supporters of far-right former president... Last week, we heard from Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld. She's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an expert on democracy and security. She explained how political violence can happen when influential pundits or politicians create a climate of fear. Then other people might hear that narrative and take violent action. There are people who gin up an atmosphere in which other people act. And if you don't recognize that the creation of the atmosphere is part of what's enabling it, you might think that you are uh, not guilty. We really need to find a way to convince the people who are creating this atmosphere that they are really the ones holding the gun and someone else is pulling the trigger. How do we convince people who are ginning up the fear to realize the effect they're having? And by the way, that includes those of us who share violent memes or degrading jokes on social media. All of that contributes to this atmosphere. So today we're going to talk to someone who has personal experience coming to this realization and helping others get there, even in the midst of very violent conflict.
1: My name is Curtis Toller. I'm currently the Director of Outreach for Chicago Cred, which is an uh, organization founded by the former Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan. Um, we want to have a transformative reduction in shootings and homicides in Chicago and abroad. I guess... You can say I'm an expert in conflict resolution.
2: For my last book, High Conflict, I spent many hours with Curtis in Chicago learning how people get into violent conflict and how they get out. And lately, he and I have been branching out, talking to groups of people who don't think of themselves as gangs, but are trapped in similar kinds of dysfunctional group conflict. People like politicians. Okay, so it might seem like Political violence and gang violence are really different. But actually, the history converges right where you are in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the late 1800s, Chicago politicians actually sponsored gangs, right? What they call them athletic clubs and uh, used them to intimidate voters, stuff ballot boxes, and enforce segregation. So that is the definition of political violence, and the tool were... Gangs of mostly, I think, Irish immigrants at the time. Is that right?
1: Yep. Yeah, you hit it, right? And then even having a conversation with, with some folks from the Hill, it was, you know, uh, kind of easy to get them to understand that they did act as gangs and some people feel that they are gangs and sometimes they themselves feel that they are gangs because when they said they, you know, we refer to them as the gang of six or the gang yeah. of eight, right? I was like, yeah, yeah that's yeah, gang yeah. banging. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you're talking about, so uh, a couple months ago, you and I, had dinner with a small group of senior staffers in the Senate here in D.C. to talk about what you've learned from gang violence interruption that might apply to political violence. And when you and I met before then, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't know how they would respond to that analogy. But they got it right away. Yeah. Right? I mean, Yeah. Like, what was it. your takeaway from that conversation?
1: I was kind of, you know like you. I was like, are they going to get it? Are they going to be able to correlate the two things together to see that they're there? They have a lot in common. Are
2: they going to get on this ride? Exactly. (laughs) And and they got
1: right on the train and rode, rode along with us. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, some really good conversations came out of it, but then, you know, not too, too long after that, we had the thing, unfortunately that happened to, uh, Nancy Pelosi to her husband.
2: Paul Pelosi. Yeah,
1: yeah. right. And so this thing is getting even more serious.
2: On today's show, we're going to talk about how regular people, people like you and me and Curtis, get sucked into intractable conflict, the kind that can so easily tip into violence, and how we can break free. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into questions like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? Or what is the power of negative thinking? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, athletes, Nobel laureates, and more about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones. Choiceology is out now. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
2: Before we get into solutions, it's worth getting to know Curtis a little better. He grew up on the south side of Chicago. He loved to break dance and play basketball. He was the oldest of several kids and was best friends with his mom, who had him as a teenager. He also witnessed a lot of violence at home and in the streets, and he joined his first street gang at the age of nine years old. <laughs>
1: When I think about that, right, I think about, man, that was a really, really young age. That's one of the things that really, really makes this relevant, right? Because if we don't get a handle on this, right, then it shapes the thought processes of other generations, if that makes sense, right? Because when I think about, you know, I was nine joining a gang So I took on that gang's identity, and my brain wasn't even fully formed yet.
2: The social psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes about how humans are groupish by nature. We have in our minds a sort of hive switch that shuts down the self and makes us feel temporarily that we're part of a larger group. And it's just impossible to understand gang conflict or political conflict without understanding this are deep wiring to live through our various tribes vicariously.
1: There were these ongoing wars that I just became a part of, and some of them I didn't even really know why. You know, that even relates to what we're talking about now. When you say some folks don't even know why, it's just the people that I side with and some of their views, and some of them look like me and act like me. So, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm a part of it, right?
2: increasingly American kids do not have parents who disagree about politics. In fact, it's more common for people to support interracial dating and interracial marriage than interpolitical dating and marriage today. And so you have this really homogeneous experience and your parents identify with Republicans or Democrats and so do you. And we know from the research that when your group experiences humiliation or pain or loss, the brain processes it like it's happening to you, like physical pain. So I was no just looking at this doubt. study where you could s- no yeah, you doubt. could see the brain scans and they're the same. Like if I, if I give you an electric shock or I give your family member an electric shock or your group an electric shock, the brain kind of responds the same way, lights up the same way. So that's really like it's almost like a, it's a beautiful curse, right, of humans that we experience such vicarious triumph and suffering.
1: Yeah. Think about people who are really embedded into their sports, th- their team, yes. right? You know, when you see them yes. crying and when yeah. they win or score a touchdown, and yeah, right? And you like, but you're not even in the game, right? <laughs> you know, I know, You know, I know. But we have a new quarterback here in Chicago. And he's doing great. Justin Fields, like when he makes that little move that he does and spins around yeah. and runs for a <laughs> 60-yard touchdown, I feel it and I can hear my son in the other room yelling mm. and screaming and jumping up and down, <laughs> right? And it's something, right, yeah. how we identify with those who we choose to be a part of. And when yeah. you think about the gang culture, right, we're saying that these people are our family members which they you know they are our kinship right and so their thought their pain their hurt becomes ours right and so it's been it's even been times right that i knew what we were doing and who we were doing it to was wrong Mm -hmm. but i still did it right and it was and we had this saying right right or wrong we'll find out about that later and that's total garbage, right? Think about that, right? I'm gonna be with you, right, whether you're right or wrong, and then we'll discuss it after it happens. But, you know, I'm sure that other people have those kind of philosophies as well.
2: In other words, winning starts to matter more than anything else, more than right or wrong, more than your country or your values, more than your own safety, even. This past election season, to take just one example, Democrats spent nearly $19 million amplifying far-right Republican candidates, according to a Washington Post analysis. Why would they do that? So they could help them win the primaries and thus be easier for Democrats to defeat in the general election. And in a lot of cases, it worked. But at what cost? In really poisonous conflict, humans will start to work against the things they hold most dear. Eventually, they can start to justify all kinds of things they would never normally support, including violence.
1: When you think about stopping a civil war, what it, or what it would look like, you know, we would first have to define who is the conflict between. Then you have to go deeper to figure out what is this conflict really
0: about?
2: Like, what you're doing is kind of mapping the conflict, right? And that's where you sort of start, Yep. right? Like, who are the players? Who are the people who are respected on both sides? Who maybe are formers on one side? Who, Or maybe never were in the conflict, uh, but are respected or have some influence. So you're trying to get a sense of all the different players. Mm -hmm. And part of why you're trying to do that, right, is because you want to see if you can get some percentage of them to agree to a different way of being in conflict. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we're trying to shift the norms, right? And we also have to think about what harm has been done on either side.
2: Yeah, right, it reminds me of, um, there's a great book uh, by a woman named Donna Hicks who's worked in Northern Ireland and South Africa and all kinds of conflict zones, and it's called Dignity. Mm -hmm. And what she found is that no matter where she was at every negotiation table, at some point they just hit a wall and they just could not go on, even though rationally they should be able to continue negotiating. And what she finally realized is there were these deep violations to people's dignity, Mm. is how she talked about it, that had to be talked about. They had to be dealt with. And until you dealt with them, you just could not make progress, right? And and is that kind of what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, because in a conflict, usually both sides have done harm. So you have to get both of them to even agree that harm has been done because you're going to keep hitting that brick wall because if a person don't feel that they've done any harm, then it's kind of hard to get them to move forward.
2: Here's our first step. We got to get at least some of the leaders of rival groups to acknowledge harm that was done, even if they personally did not do that harm. This is really hard to do, as Curtis knows all too well.
1: You'll say, can you admit that there was harm done, right? They won't actually say, yeah, they'll go to the butt. But six of my guys were shot. You kind of know what I mean, right? right? They always jump to... the The
2: defensive justification.
1: So it's easier for it to become violent now because you never talked about the first time that the harm was done, right? So in the back of your mind or in your conscious, right, you have that, this person harmed me, right? And they never... Said they never even acknowledged it. But then we have to go to when was the most recent episode of violence?
2: Well, this does feel extremely relevant to politics because I will tell you when I talk to members of Congress, what happened on January 6th has never been talked about in private with a facilitator between the parties in an honest way for most members of Congress. And it is just fermenting underground. Like the Democrats are extremely angry. They don't feel like this attack on the institution and on themselves and their staff has been acknowledged, right? Mm. Uh, And then on the other side, it seems like a lot of the Republicans feel like they're doing the butts, right? The justification right? I didn't, I didn't tell them to go in there. And plus there was Antifa there and all the other like dubious claims that you hear. So you get, you get into this cycle where it's not being talked about, but it is definitely driving the conflict. I mean, these are, these are people, you know, these are humans. That's trauma that just doesn't get talked about.
1: Yeah. And and that's really, really unfortunate. Just to be frank, it's kind of hard to move forward if someone is not willing to just say hey you know it happened it was wrong at least Right? Yeah. (laughs) Going to just like a street conflict, right? I'll have a guy in a room. He'd be like, yeah, I I wasn't actually the guy that shot him. It was such and such, such and such, but he was part of your group. Right? Mm. So, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it wasn't you directly, but it was you indirectly. And if you're the leader of this particular group and it's coming from you, trust me, the people that harm was done to will take it and receive it.
2: And look. Calling it out can be politically risky to say the least. Take Liz Cheney who broke from party lines to seek justice and accountability for January 6th and ended up losing her seat in Congress. It helps if a group of leaders take this step together and it can also take years for this to happen. But the goal ultimately is to get people to acknowledge the harm so that they can then start to talk about the future and how to do conflict differently usually by coming up with some sort of non-aggression agreement or code of conduct, something politicians in other countries have done many times before in order to reset basic norms of decency. But the more violence that happens, the harder it is to get people to the table.
1: We're talking about conflicts where there has been loss of life, right? And sometimes a lot of loss of life, right? And those are extremely hard to overcome when you're talking about the death of a loved one. And when I say loved one, I don't mean that they had to be actually related to you through blood, but they're your loved one because you love them and they're part of your particular group. Um, And when you think about someone who's experienced that kind of loss, it's sometimes, majority of the time, really, really difficult to get them to come to a to the table to talk about a non-aggression agreement, right? Because we're just set up to get our lick back or retaliation.
2: So it's really hard, but it is not impossible to get people to come to the table. Take Curtis, for example, who voluntarily left the high conflict that he'd been trapped in for over a decade. He didn't do this after he got shot. He didn't do this after he went to prison. He left after he had kids and he started to think of himself as a father, as a husband, as something more than a gang leader.
1: And I think that's something that, you know, we all have to think about, even talking about this political realm that we're in, right? Do we want our children and our grandchildren to go through
2: this? That is the question. That is the question, right? It is always kids who suffer the most in this kind of conflict. In any conflict. It does seem like I hear this again and again, whether it's in the Colombian Civil War or in, you know, a high conflict divorce, that the most powerful sales pitch there is for people to come to the table is their kids.
1: I definitely agree. Kids and family.
2: All right. Now we've got something to work with. The loudest voices in our political conflict may not be willing to dial down the vitriol for themselves, but they might be willing to do it for their kids. After the break, we'll hear how this played out on One Chicago Playground. Stay with us.
0: If you want to make a change this year, check out How to Be a Better Human, a podcast from TED. I'm Chris Duffy. I'm a comedian, and each week on How to Be a Better Human, I sit down to have an honest and hopefully funny and revealing conversation with an expert who can help us to see the world in a new way. This season, we're diving into everything from how you can love better to how to create habits that stick, to how to have hope in a world and at a time where that feels really challenging. You can find all those topics and so many more on episodes of How to Be a Better Human, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So we had these two groups who had been in this conflict for at least 10 years, right? And they were going back and forth. Uh, and when I say bodies dropped, I, you know, I don't want to say that as if these aren't human lives that I'm talking about right. because they are, right? But, you know, there were bodies on both sides. When we said, what would it take for you guys to come up with a non-aggression agreement, right? And both of the sides to agree to it. We thought that they were going to come up with these outlandish offers. Give me a million dollars. Give me a Bentley. Buy me a new (laughs) house, right? You know, but they came to the table and they both agreed upon saying that we just want the park that we already have refurbished, right? And we want, we want it to look nice and we both will agree that this will be a safe haven for everyone to come to because our kids don't have anywhere to play. And it went from a non-aggression agreement to an actual peace treaty between these two groups based upon them wanting their kids and the community to be safe.
2: I love that example because it's like something tangible that you can see. You yeah. know? And it's a it's about the kids and safety, but it's in the future, right? But it's also, you must have felt like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, like, that's doable, right,
1: because it's right? <laughs> really doable, right? <laughs> you know, because, right. because sometimes they don't know what they want and you have to have some options for them, right? Here, here, here's the options. Do do these work for you? Like and, a menu. And, and, yeah, a menu. But we also have to understand in any non-aggression agreement or whatever you want to term it as, is that there has to be give and take,
2: Oh, I see. You, you got to let them have something, the other side, without feeling like that's an inherently uh, a loss. Exactly. Is that no, what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. No
1: one wants to leave away from the table feeling that they had to lose something.
2: So we're, we've talked about some things that seem to work. And this is hard, you know, so I don't want to suggest that there's like a three-step solution. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, I know you know that this is hard. Chicago still has a very long way to go to be as safe as other large American cities right now. But, you know, in the two neighborhoods directly served by you and your colleagues at Chicago Cred and other organizations, the homicide rate is down this year, uh, 32 and 45 percent. Yeah, respectively, compared to the same time last year. And there's lots of reasons for that. Right. And lots of programs working in those neighborhoods. But there is some evidence that this can work. And, And I mean, if we just pull back for a second, all you're trying to do right is dial down the threat level with these non-aggression pacts. Is that right?
1: That's it, right? We're not saying that, you know, that you all have to stand together and hold hands. And, you know, we would wanted to get to that, you know, to that level, you know, right. uh, where you all singing in the choir together, but that's not what we're asking to do. We're just saying to stop being so damn violent.
2: I know this is gonna sound like a dumb question, but what causes people to be violent?
1: Mm. Um. And this is cliche, right? hurt people hurt people and violence is addictive
2: Hmm. it feeds on itself
1: yeah yeah violence oh my goodness it is addictive and it really comes down sometimes to not being able to speak or to feel that someone is more than and you are less than
2: that's the disrespect the humiliation the
1: disrespect and the humiliation and also how easy it is to put someone else in their own little box for you not to like them, right? They have this thing yeah. uh in Chicago and it's abroad now, but I kind of think it was popularized here in Chicago through rap and through the gang culture. They call each other ops, right? Meaning that you're opposite of me and you're my opposition, right? Mm-hmm. And so once you
2: tag
1: someone as being something different from you, it's mm-hmm. easy to become violent towards them.
2: I often quote you to groups of people when I'm trying to explain this, because you said, um, anytime there's a better than and a less than, there's always room for war.
1: Always.
2: So if we, if we try to transfer this to politics, a lot of what you're doing in these non-aggression pacts ideally is you're trying to, to rein in the language used on social media to describe the other, the ops, or to humiliate or disrespect the dead. Is that right?
1: Yeah, again, and we say it all the time, right? When someone feels disrespected and humiliated, it's really, really easy to turn into violence, right? And so you're talking about with this advent of social media that a person can be disrespected and humiliated and millions of people see it at the push of a button.
2: And this is a direct analogy. So to politics, because you have politicians and pundits who have a lot of influence, huge followings on social media, on cable news, who are dialing up the threat level, are saying that half the country, you know, worships Satan and is grooming children because they're pedophiles. That is dialing up the threat level. Right. Or that that half the country uh, hates democracy. Right. Right hates, uh, America. So you have these people saying these things and it's become pretty normalized. So now it's just kind of happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you confront them about it, they say, this is free speech. When you're talking to people, how do you connect the dots for them that actually words matter?
1: Yeah. And you know, we get, some of these young men who are, you know, really, really, you know, we call them law students, right? And they'll say that, you know, it's free speech, but it's yeah, it's free, really free, right? Because it's usually not, right? It, it usually some of this free speech or some of the things that you're saying is free usually or can or has cost someone's life, right? So is that really free speech, right? If, yeah. if what you're saying can cause uh, someone To harm someone else then there's a price that is being paid for it so it's really not free anymore um so we had this one guy really really influential he had about a million followers right and so what we were noticing is that and i'm sure this this is in the political realm as well is that When you have a person with a million followers saying one thing and you have another person with even a hundred thousand followers saying another, the person with a million followers seem like they're easily more attractive to the masses. Good, bad or mm-hmm. indifferent, right, and so we was like, how do we counteract this guy? He has this huge following and people are listening to him right and so what we did was we found the guy we found three or four people with a hundred thousand followers we found ten with ten thousand you know we found twenty five <laughs> you know with six or seven thousand right until we got to enough of those influencers right who had just uh, as a bigger following as a person with a million even though it wasn't just the one person right and we had them kind of uh um, co their followers together right we'll put them <laughs> on something together we'll put five of them on something together so now all of their fo- and so that was one of the things that, you know, that we did. And he was like, oh, OK, <laughs> y'all, teaming up, y'all teaming up against me. Right. And so eventually he did say something different. He didn't go all the way to the side that we wanted him to go to. But we just wanted him to at least see that it was that we could form, you know, a coalition <laughs> to go against the rhetoric that he was speaking. Because at first he felt like he was untouchable. Right. Because he just had this enormous following right. that people were listening to. It right, right? was impossible.
2: Possible, yeah. Right? Yeah. I love this. It's basically a math problem is what you're saying. Like, yeah.
1: Majority of our problems <laughs> is math, right?
2: Because <laughs> I'm thinking about all these, you know, fire starters and conflict entrepreneurs in politics who have millions of people following them. Well, you know what? You add up a bunch of lower level politicians and pundits yeah. who are not as high conflict. Now you have equal reach, yeah, and, and, I love that. And
1: that was one of the things that we were talking about even when we were talking to the folks from from the Hill, right, is that a lot of them felt that they didn't have enough power. They just felt powerless, right? right? And, they felt you know, powerless. And yeah. I think that's one of the ways when you can get them to all come together to increase their power. I think that's one of the strategies that has worked for me as well.
2: Here's the next insight while we're asking our leaders to please, please come to the table and do things differently, we can also do something in our own spheres of influence. We can condemn violence in all its forms on all of our social media channels. We can remind each other that we are all Americans, all human, all worthy of dignity. We can call out people within our own groups who are dialing up the threat level. And here's the magical thing, Even if we are not personally TikTok influencers, we are loud together. Let's say there are roughly 100,000 people who will listen to this show. And let's say they all have on average, I don't know, 200 followers. Together, that's 20 million followers. That's more than three times the number of followers that Tucker Carlson has on Twitter. Just saying, maybe we're not as helpless as we feel.
1: The time is now, right? I think that enough has happened for all sides and all parties to really be like, "Yeah, we should do something now do you do you feel that something is happening uh, in the in the political realm or no
2: yeah, I feel like they're 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 just miserable enough, you know what I'm okay. saying, like to hit that saturation point where um you know, you, you got to be miserable, right? You got to be at a level of misery where you want out and then someone has to invite you out.
1: Mm, you hit it. The invitation.
2: <laughs> and I remember you saying something like 80% of the people who are in high conflict want out if only someone would ask.
1: If only someone asks. Who, who wants to live in a world of fear, right? The majority of people don't want that, right?
2: And sometimes you have to invite them... More than once?
1: Yeah, a hundred times. I mean, because this has has become their norm, right? Right. And then when, when something has become normal for them, it becomes habit, right? And we know how hard habits are to break.
2: What are the words that you would suggest people use here talking about street violence?
1: Focus on what they care about and who they care and usually who they care about. And, you know, in conflict, we always use who's their why or what's their why, right? And how that, what they're doing is impacting their why or impacting what they're trying to accomplish. And some of them may not even know what they're trying to accomplish, but there's usually someone or something that they care dearly about.
2: Listening to you, it seems like there are, uh, there's an analogy with politics. So most Americans know someone who is deeply bewitched by our political conflict. And maybe they're not in politics, right? But they're listening to extremely partisan podcasts. They're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, YouTube for, for hours a day. They're really deeply motivated by the political conflict and there is a cost to that for them for their family you know there's a temptation i think to distance yourself Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. from people who are really bewitched by conflict and sometimes it's for your own safety which is one thing right but sometimes it's because it's you know it's toxic um, and it's sad and it's right And they're right, and you don't feel like having an argument about this, and you you know it's upsetting, right? Um, But what you're saying is you got to find out what their why is. What do they hold dear? And maybe it's their religious beliefs. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's their children, right? Mm -hmm. And and can you speak to that? And can you connect with them? And not just once, but again and again.
1: Yeah, and again, like we're 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 taking real small steps, right? Because I think sometimes we go into these conversations and we try to change their whole belief system, right? Or when right, we're, right, we're, right. or <laughs> when they're this or when we're talking about these street involved young men and women, we go in saying that, you know, and I hear, you know, a lot of the people in politics, we're gonna we're We're anti-gang. No, I'm not anti-gang. I'm anti-violence. I don't care about the gang, right? The gang could have some benefits. I just want them to stop being violent, right? And I think that's the same conversation that, you know, that we need to start Mm. having, right? Okay, your belief system, uh, I might not believe in it, but can we all agree that violence is not the answer? And I think that's the start, right? Because you go in like, I, I don't think that you should be a Republican. I don't think that you should be a Democrat. Right. That, their whole philosophy is wrong. OK, you, it's kind of hard to sway someone like that. But can we just say, hey, I think that hurting someone or harming someone is not good for anybody. Can we agree on that?
2: That's the start, the spark, the thing we can work with. Can we agree that what we're doing isn't the answer? We need to start seeing each other as human again, even as we disagree. And by the way, if you're at a place where you really are ready to have bigger, direct conversations about politics with your family, we have a few episodes for you that I think will be really helpful, and we'll link to them in the show notes. Meanwhile, a big thank you to Curtis and to Rachel for talking with us in these last couple of episodes. And thank all of you for bearing with us for two pretty heavy episodes about a pretty serious topic. We promise we've got some lighter problems to solve coming up very soon in the next few weeks. But we are always open here at the How To Hotline for all of your problems, big or small. Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. We'd love to have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, You know what to do. Give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people and save more democracies. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merit Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.